0: We made it. We made it. Give yourselves a hand. You don't even know what you're giving yourselves a hand. I just wanted to see if you did it, so it's good. We made it through Thanksgiving Day. We did it. And we made it through Black Friday. How about that? You ever wonder why they call it Black Friday? I wondered. Here's your answer. Contrary to Christian fear and folklore, the name Black Friday has nothing to do with the occult has no occult connotations at all. I saw this uh, website, this Christian apparel website, that crossed out the word black and put the word blessed, blessed Friday. You don't have to do that. It's totally unnecessary. Actually, the name Black Friday originated all the way back in 1966. Like, it's not that old. In Philadelphia, where it was used to describe the heavy and disruptive pedestrian vehicle traffic that occurred on the day after Thanksgiving, which we all saw uh, on Friday. Anyway, right? Well, by about 1975, the term had caught on. It was being used outside of Philadelphia. And later on, it picked up a different definition or explanation, which I, I actually was the one I always thought it was, that Black Friday indicates the period during which retailers go into the black for the year. So when you're in the red, you're not making money, but Christmas and Christmas shopping comes along, holiday shopping comes along, and now you turn a profit and you're in the black. So that's one way of looking at Black Friday. Was that helpful to anybody? No? All right. Did you get caught up in it? Did you do the whole Black Friday thing? Anybody here wake up really early and do any Black Friday shopping? Oh, I am so glad to see that. Not one hand went up. I, I, I'm really glad because in, in the old days, it would take a lot to admit that, but I, apparently people have, have gotten help for it, and that's a good thing. I, I have never found any deal that was good enough to convince me to ever do that, to, to camp out in front of you know, the Best Buy or deal with the malls and the crowds. And, and anyway, I'm sure we all agree that the holy day that is coming up is m- Monday, Cyber Monday tomorrow, which is the real holiday. So, No? guys aren't much in the way of consumers. Anyway, Thanksgiving's over and it's now beginning to look a lot like what? Christmas. Yes. I know that if you're a transplanted northerner, you don't think so, but this is it, man. This is about as Christmassy as it gets. You know it's Christmas because the mall's decorated, parking lots are decorated, and we put up the white trees. That's how you know. That's how you know. Now, at home, I'm finally allowed to put up my Christmas decorations, my Christmas tree and stuff. I don't know if you guys have this uh, situation in your house. Beth, my wife, likes to wait until after Thanksgiving to put up our Christmas stuff. But this year, I was given a bit of a disappointment. Because this year, we're going to be watching our grand dog. <laughs> Just saying that makes me feel bad. I don't like saying grand dog. I can't believe I've said that word. But anyway, I've been reliably informed that our grand dog, an Aussie, that, well, when they're between four and 36 months, which, which he is, they turn into velociraptors and they tear up your house. Can I get a nod from the Aussie people? Yeah, it's true, yeah, okay. They tear down Christmas trees, so there won't be one in my house this year. Oh, I know. But in any case, it is Advent. Welcome to the Advent season. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And so that's what we celebrate during this Advent season, which are the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. Many Christian traditions observe the season of Advent. It's not particular to one denomination or another, but certain ways of conducting services. And the season of Advent for everybody serves as a reminder of the arrival of the Christ, of the Messiah, as well as our waiting for his return in the second coming. And though we see bumper stickers around town and car magnets around town, they come out every Christmas and they say things like, put Christ back in Christmas, or Jesus is the reason for the season. Most people, and I, and I would say most people, even the ones that call themselves Christians, aren't really focused on Jesus, no matter what their bumper sticker says. See, I, I think that most people are focused on one thing this time of year. Can you guess what that is? Yeah, presents, shopping, Christmas gifts, stuff. See, what seems to be most important this time of year are the things that we buy or the things that we will get as a gift. And the prevailing belief seems to be that if we can buy the perfect gift or receive the perfect gift from from somebody we love, then our lives will be changed forever. We put a lot of weight on those presents. Well, I don't know about you, but I can say that, even though I've received some wonderful Christmas gifts, and if you've given me one, thank you very much. And I always appreciate Christmas gifts. I don't think I've ever received one that changed my life. And I'm confident most people would say the same thing. It's far more likely that after a gift is open, even if it's a perfect gift, both the gift giver and the gift recipient will eventually experience that post-gift letdown. You know the post-gift letdown? It's that awkward moment after all the gifts are open and you look out at the living room and just covered with paper, and wrapping, and boxes, and packages, and we're looking at the things we got, and we're thinking about the things that we didn't get, and we're thinking, oh gosh, I got to pick up all that paper. And you know the thing you have to do when you shake the paper out to make sure you're not throwing away any presents? Anyone ever throw away a present? I've done that. You do it one time, and now now you have to check every time. Like, every single time. And, and you get kind of morose around that time of year, like right after Christmas, there's this big letdown and you're going, oh no, Christmas is over and it's gonna be New Year's soon and then I gotta go back to work and back to my routine. And we're thinking, is that all there is? I'm sorry if I brought you down, I really didn't mean to, but this is what happens to us. We all hate that feeling. We all hate that is this all there is feeling, but we usually don't know what to do about it, right? But you know, Christmas doesn't have to end this way. You see, Christmas is a reminder of the manifestation of God's love for a broken people. Christmas is a celebration of the arrival of a Savior that was promised thousands of years ago and was predicted or prophesied during the thousands of years that followed. And Christmas is the ultimate example of how our omnipotent, which means all-powerful God, used extraordinary means, so there's ordinary means, means that we can all use, and then there's above ordinary means or extraordinary means, and God used extraordinary means to rescue his people from the tragedy of sin and death. Now Christmas is the time that we not only remember, but we celebrate the supernatural way in which God, who is above the world, who exists outside of time and space, who exists outside of of the world that constrains us, this God enters into time and space solely for the purpose of making a way for his people to be free from the bonds of slavery to sin and to become internally connected to him. Now, if we can learn to understand Christmas in this way, it can bring us joy all year long, and I think that's what we probably would all say we would like. But the question becomes, how do we get there? How do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? You see, we may know the Christmas story, But in order for us to truly celebrate Christmas, we need to know the God who loved us enough to send not just a person to start some quiet, meaningless movement that could easily be overshadowed by retail sales events and and family rituals and bumper stickers and cliche sayings, but the gift of Messiah who would revolutionize the world. Because when you know God like that, well then Christmas changes, Christmas transforms into a constant reminder of the unprecedented way in which the God of the universe worked over thousands of years to call a people, to call a people across racial and ethnic and national and international boundaries to be his own so that these people could in turn bless the entire world. Christmas is a big deal. What God did 2,000 years ago wasn't just an afterthought. It was an outrageous, radical event, the likes of which the world had never seen before and the likes of which the world will never see again until this Messiah returns to usher in God's promised kingdom here on earth. Like I said, Christmas is a big deal. And this Advent season, in order to assure that this, this Christmas doesn't end in that letdown, we're going to be talking about the radical gift of the Messiah. <clears throat> Here's what we'll be doing for the next four weeks. We'll be talking about the radical gift of the Messiah. This week, we're going to talk about how it all began in our message called The Radical Rescue. And for anyone who pays attention to these things, next week, we're going to look at the radical promise, then the radical plan, then the radical announcement, and on Christmas Eve. We'll talk about the radical arrival. And now, when this series is over, it's my hope that we'll all have the context and the tools that we'll need to every day throughout the year get excited about and confidently proclaim the truth of our God to the broken world around us. So that's the hope here. After this Advent, after this Christmas season, we're going to carry this through the entire New Year. So now let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father God, we thank you for gathering us together here this morning. We thank you for bringing us together uh, across what we say are multiple platforms. We are here in person. We are online on YouTube. We're online on Facebook. You can pick us up on our app. And God, we just thank you for this technology that allows us to come together as the family of your people to come together as a people who love you and who want to proclaim you to the world. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use your word to open our hearts and minds, to help us to know you better, to help us to love you better, and to help us to serve you with all that we are. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody remember a few years ago when we watched the saga of the miners in Chile? who were stuck for over two months in a mine that was a half a mile underground. Do you remember that story? After 69 days down there, the miners were rescued. So now I want to ask you a question. Why did they need to be rescued? It's silly, right? It's a silly question. Why did they need to be rescued? You know, because they were trapped in a mine, okay? They were stuck in a mine for over two months. If they weren't trapped in the mine, they wouldn't have needed rescuing from the mine. Doesn't that make sense? I think that, as you can see in the picture that we just showed, don't they look happy when they were brought to the surface? Don't you think they appreciated being rescued? I mean, look at the joy on those people's faces. And so from this picture, at least, we can surmise that if you appreciate your need to be rescued, you'll appreciate being rescued. Doesn't that make sense? Well, that's what the rescue that Christmas is all about. That's the rescue that Christmas is all about. Now, in order to understand the rescue that Christmas is all about... The rescue that Christmas commemorates, we need to understand what it was that put us in the hole. What disaster took place that we need rescuing from. Doesn't that make sense? I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but growing up, I remember seeing bumper stickers that said, Jesus saves. Anybody remember those bumper stickers? I can like, picture them in my head. They were yellow with black writing. just said, Jesus saves. Now, of course, I know what that means Now. And I understand that that was supposed to be some kind of evangelism tool or something, right? But back then, as a non-believer, the statement, Jesus saves, had absolutely no meaning for me. None whatsoever. And it wasn't just that I didn't know what it was talking about. I didn't even realize it was talking. I didn't know it was talking about anything. I, I thought it was just people putting words on a bumper and had no context whatsoever. I didn't know who Jesus was. I didn't know what he was saving. And I didn't even know what saving meant. And I certainly had no clue that Jesus is God and we're the ones who are being saved. And I suspect for many people, that's still the case today. I have to tell you that I've been a pastor for now a long time and over the years I've spoken with, without exaggeration, hundreds of people Many of whom were raised in the church, by the way, who have no understanding about our need for salvation. And as a result, they have no understanding about the reason for the Christmas celebration. Well, that needs to be fixed because at a minimum, every follower of Jesus needs to be ready to explain what it means to be saved. And in order to answer that question, we need to start at the beginning. So now we're going to try to figure out what it is we're being saved from, or how it all began. Now, the story of Christmas appropriately begins in the book called Beginnings, the book called Bereshith. Bereshith is the Hebrew name for the Old Testament book that we know of as Genesis. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 set the stage for the entire Bible, And it's in these three chapters that we'll discover why we need a Savior. So, with that in mind, we're going to turn to chapter 1 in the book of Genesis. Everybody knows this verse. Like, everyone in the world knows this verse. Some people call it the baseball verse. In the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a baseball guy, but that's kind of funny. Well, whatever. Anyway. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, at the outset, from this text what can we see? Well, one thing we can see is there is a God. And we can also see that this God is not only the creator of the heavens and the earth, but we can infer that he lives outside of creation and that he existed before creation. How can we infer that? Because our creator God exists on a different plane than us, on a different plane than his created being. So right from the beginning of Genesis, we can see that God is supremely powerful and he's capable of existing beyond the constraints of his creation. And we say that because of this. If God can create a world, it's obvious he's not bound by the rules and laws and confines of that world he created. It's it's similar to this. If a watchmaker creates a watch, the watchmaker is not constrained to live inside of that watch. He's outside of the watch. He exists outside of the watch he's created. And it's interesting. When we look at this verse, when we look at the Hebrew word used here for God, remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the word used for God is the word Elohim. We see that the word Elohim is plural. In Hebrew, the I-M ending is plural. You guys remember, there used to be a restaurant that closed down right around COVID, but it was called Burger Im out in Mission Bay. That is an Israeli restaurant. It's a Hebrew word that meant burgers, okay? So Im is plural, Elohim is plural. So when we read this, we're also made aware that we have this creator God who sits outside of time and space. And even though our God is one, we talk about this in the Shema, the the Jews declare hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know that this God is not confined to being just one manifestation. Ooh, what does that mean? Hang on to that. Let's continue. We go on to verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God, in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So in verse two, we begin to see the reason for that plural reference to God, for that use of Elohim when referring to God. In verse one, we saw God the creator and here in verse two, we see God the spirit, God the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters that he's created. Now, over the next few verses, which we're going to skip over in the interest of time, God goes on, he sets up the world in which his creation would live. And then around verse 26, or in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is relevant again. Who's God talking to? Who's there with him? He's there with himself. He's referring to himself in the plural so if we believe that God is one, how is God plural? Well, as we've already seen, God is one, but his manifestations are more than one. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. You with me so far? Good? Here we also see that God created man in his own image and likeness. What does that mean? It's simple. It means we bear resemblance to God. By the way, we bear resemblance to God. We don't bear resemblance to each other, do we? Well, we actually do. And in fact, all over the world, we all bear a resemblance. All people basically bear a resemblance to each other. And we're told that that's what God looks like. So continuing on, verse 26, And God that let them, man that he's created, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In the next verse, Moses restates that remember Moses is the author of this book so Moses restates it in verse 27 so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him so watch the pronouns here we love pronouns in this day and age God created man in his own image in the image of God he God created him man who is man male and female so he's talking about both men and women Male and female, he created them. So when God says he created man in his own image, that includes women too. These words then, we can see that both men and women were created with equal value. But we also see that even though men and women were created with equal value, they weren't created the same. He took time to make a distinction between the two. And we see that right there. He created man in his own image, but he referred to them as male and female, which means that male and female were equally valued, but they also at the same time were unique and special. As we read Genesis 1, it's also to help it's also helpful to understand this. Genesis 1 is not the micro-detailed chapter. Genesis 1 is sort of a macro big picture. Chapter. I had a professor in college who was from Louisiana, and he said macro and macro exactly the same way, and it was almost impossible to understand them, so I'm trying to enunciate. This is not the micro-detail chapter. It is the macro big picture chapter. Genesis 1 is sort of a 30,000-foot, 35,000-foot flyover version of the creation account when we want to know more about the specifics of creation we drill down when we get to Genesis 2 which we're going to see in a minute all right so let's finish up chapter 1 verse 28 and god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that moves on the earth so here god tells his creation go make babies Go be fruitful and multiply and also subdue the earth. Get the earth under control and then rule over it. So by the end of Genesis 1, the stage is set for God's creation to rule over the earth. So now we're going to move on to Genesis 2. And remember, Genesis 2 gives us a a zoomed in view, a closer view of creation. So Genesis 2.1, Moses draws a picture of the Sabbath rest that God instituted. Remember, God created the world in six days. He took one day to take a break. That's the model for us, that when we work for six days, we can take one day as a Sabbath break. In Genesis 2, 5 through 6, Moses provides further details of the earth that God created, and then we get to Genesis 2, 7. And in Genesis 2, 7, we see a significant event. Then the Lord God formed a man Of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. All right, so you saw it. In Genesis 1, we already talked about the man being created. In Genesis 2, now we're seeing specifically how it happened. And it's important to notice that when we zoom in on the detail, man was formed first. Okay, so we saw in Genesis 1 the equality of man and woman as created beings. And we saw how they were unique, but in Genesis 2, we begin to see the details of their uniqueness. We move on to verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we see how God created this perfect place to put man in to live. And these verses were also introduced to what the garden looked like, to the trees in the garden, both the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're not told much about these trees right here, but we do know that they bore some kind of fruit, which we're going to see in a bit. Now, as Genesis 2 continues, Moses described the geography of the land and some of the minerals it contained. And he described some of the rivers that flowed through this land. And these rivers, by the way, were the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. Has anybody ever heard of those? Where are they located? Modern-day Iraq. Iraq. Isn't that, I always think that's really interesting that all this was going on right there where a lot of our attention is still focused in 2021. And next we see the, we see the responsibility for the garden that God gave to the man. So here's what God said in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then after that, God gives the man a command and a warning. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now this is major foreshadowing here. This is major foreshadowing that's going to help us on today's quest. You see, God instructed man that he could eat from all of the trees in the garden save one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told man that were he to eat from that tree, he would surely die, which now gets us closer to the radical rescue. So I want you to take notice of the timing. Created first the man We refer to him as Adam. That's actually not a proper name in the Hebrew Bible. It's a description of the man. It's become a proper name, but it wasn't then. But he created Adam first and gave him work and responsibility. He told the man that he was to lead. And he told him that the penalty for his failure to obey would be death. Now hold on to that thought. Because next, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Hang on to find out what God does after he gives Adam his final assignment. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Interesting. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. So God assigned Adam a job, a couple of jobs. He said, I want you to name all the animals in the garden. And then I want you to rule over all the animals in the garden. And I want you to keep working the garden. And I told you I needed you to be fruitful and multiply, to populate the earth, and then God authorized Adam. He said, you can eat anything you want, anything in the garden, any tr- from any tree in the garden, except the fruit from the forbidden tree. And he warned Adam that violation of that prohibition would lead to his death. And then after God gave Adam his assignments and his warning, after, that's when God provides Adam with the helper. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, I like to take a time out here because there may be some ladies among us who are going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you calling a helper? I don't appreciate that. Well, I want you to know, ladies, don't think for one moment that that is demeaning to call the woman the helper. Because you see in the scripture, God saved that distinction and that designation for only the most revered people. God refers to himself as a helper, And he refers to God, the Holy Spirit, as a helper. So that's some pretty good company. All right? It's not a slur. It's a promotion. Then God gives us the details of how he made the woman. So here's what he says in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, Adam's ribs, and closed up the place with the flesh. And that And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. All right. So now we see the creation of man, the creation of woman. We see the garden. We see the rules. And lastly, God provides the details of his design for the relationship between man and woman. So God says, this is how you men and women are supposed to be together. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not Ashamed. So, by the end of Genesis 2, all the pieces are in place. God created man and woman in his image. He gave them a perfect place to live. He gave them a meaningful job to do. He gave them a purposeful life to lead, and he gave them a clear rule to follow. Now, at this point in human history, things were pretty good for humankind. There was nothing from which mankind needed saving. Nothing. Everything was going really well. They lived in a paradise, There was no sickness, there was no shame, there was no disease, there was no death, nothing was out of place, nothing was out of control, no salvation necessary, no saving necessary. So what happened? That brings us to the next question. What do we need saving from? Well, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, the next chapter, that's when the adversary enters the picture. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. So it's here that we meet the serpent. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus is going to refer to this serpent in Revelation twelve nine as Satan, the adversary, the deceiver. So the serpent approaches the woman and says this. Still in Genesis three one, did God actually say, "You shall not eat from"? Any tree in the garden? Now, first off, you're talking about a serpent who can speak, which is weird, okay? But we know that the serpent was indwelled by Satan. And so Satan, speaking through the serpent, asked the woman, did, I, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, did you notice it here? It's not critical, but it's interesting. Satan lied, he's a liar he misquoted God. God never said that they shall not eat from any tree in the garden. God only said they weren't supposed to eat from one particular tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we can see the beginning. Satan is a liar, and he lies here. But what critical element do we see entering into the picture here? What do we see that's really important here? We see doubt entering the picture. The serpent was trying to inject doubt and thereby distrust into the woman's mind. Doubt and distrust of her creator, God. Why would he do that? Well, think about this. What's the fastest way to weaken a relationship? Well, it's by injecting doubt and distrust into it, right? As soon as doubt and distrust enter into a relationship, the relationship starts to fall apart. If you can't trust somebody that you love you're not going to have much relationship with them. If somebody were able to convince you married folks out there to doubt and distrust your spouse, or someone was able to convince you students out there to doubt or distrust your parents, what do you think that would do to your relationship? Yeah, it would ruin it. And that's what Satan wanted. He wanted the relationship between God and his creation to be ruined. Now, the woman responds, and her response shows that she was shaken by the approach, shaken by the question. So here's what she says in verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. All right, first thing I want you to notice here, similar to the last one, the woman's response is incorrect. God never said anything about touching the tree. He only talked about eating the tree. So that kind of shows you how thrown she was by Satan's approach and Satan's loaded question. Now, secondly, I want you to note this. The serpent asked the woman a question that she wasn't equipped to answer. He asked her what God said. Why wasn't she equipped to answer it? She wasn't there. She didn't hear God say it. The woman never spoke to God. The man spoke to God. The woman hadn't even been created when those words were spoken. And Satan knew that. And he used that fact to trip her up. The woman was unclear about her answer, and therefore she came into the whole conversation at a disadvantage. Now Satan is a master at tripping us up when we're weak and when we're confused and when we don't exactly know what's going on. Well, then Satan, having set this up, he responds in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, I added that. You won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. Serpent, having introduced doubt into the relationship between God and his creation, redefined the relationship to reflect his desired outcome. The serpent told the woman, not that God was benevolent and loving and well-intended and in control, but that God was untrustworthy and unreliable and interested only in keeping mankind oppressed. Well... Or 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I imagine it went like this. We're not supposed to eat from that tree. Yeah, you can eat from that tree. Hmm, it does look pretty tasty. I mean, that's kind of how that went, right? So she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She said, of course, she took a fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So it was in that moment, due to Satan's misdirection, In that moment, the woman's perspective about her obedience to God was altered. She looked at that fruit in a whole different light, not as something to avoid because God had commanded it, but as something by which she could use to rebel against God and to become her own God. And so she ate, and she handed some to her husband who was standing right there, obviously within arm's length with her, and he ate as well. And at that moment, everything in the world changed. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why? Because shame entered the world at that moment. And then in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool Of the day. Quick detour here. Remember a few minutes ago we were talking about Genesis 1, 1, and 2. We talked about seeing God the Father, the Creator, and then we talked about seeing God the Holy Spirit. Well, here we see another manifestation of God, God in a bod, God in human form. Now, this is referred to as a Christophany or a theophany. It's a bodily manifestation of God that shows up in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we read about Jesus all the time. The bodily manifestation of God, it's always there. But in the Old Testament, we only see it in a few places. So this is one of those places where we see it. When you hear somebody walking around in a garden, you can only hear them because they have a body and they're walking around, okay? We continue on verse 8. And the man and the wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord... Among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? You ever try to hide from God? Save your strength. It doesn't work. They they tried, but of course God knew where they were. He, He was just giving them an opportunity to own up to their mistake, and they didn't do it. They failed miserably. Then the excuses come. The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked, not because I disobeyed your law, but the one that you said you'd kill me over. No, I hid because I was naked. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? By the way, did God know the answer to that question? Yes. God knows the old adage, never ask a question you don't know the answer to. To which the man said, the woman did it. It was her fault. The woman, oh, by the way, you gave me. So it's like her fault and your fault. It's totally not my fault. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And that's why I ate it. So not only didn't he admit that he was wrong, he deflected. He blamed it on the woman. He blamed it on God. You gave her to me. So God, you know, and really, if we're being technical here, it's your fault. I'm good, right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Doesn't that sound like something you say to your dog when you walk in the kitchen and there's garbage all over the floor and the dog's kind of sitting there and he's looking up at you. "Mm, mm," And you go, what have you done? You ever do that? Am I the only one who does that? The woman said, it was a snake. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She blamed her disobedience on the snake. So with that, the relationship between God and man was shattered. Trust was gone They'd violated God's only rule. And at that moment, man and woman went from living safely and eternally in that perfect garden, in that perfect garden where they were closely connected to God, they went from that to living in eternal peril, separated from God forever. To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. And your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So after they disobeyed, God arranged for a couple of things. God arranged for childbirth to be painful. And God also arranged for the woman to be permanently frustrated by her desire to dominate her husband, but her inability to do so. So you're wondering where the tension between the sexes comes from? It had its beginnings right here. And as for the man, well, he received a punishment too. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, I'm gonna stop right there and let that one sink in. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's harsh, right? I mean, what had been this charmed and easy life? where the ground just easily gave up enough food for mankind, out of that situation became this this lifelong struggle for survival. The chapter concludes this way. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. In other words, what eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now man knows a little bit more about how to run his life. And God says to himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wait a minute, we don't want eternity, his eternity added on to his being a know-it-all. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God talked to himself. They decided, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, decided to send the man and the woman out of paradise, out of the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden into the world to struggle and to suffer and to feel pain and ultimately to physically die. What does that have to do with us? Well, if we fast forward a few thousand years to Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul told us that that sin that came into the world through Adam, Adam and Eve are our original parents. Now, even if you don't believe the Bible to be literally true. It's interesting. Recently, scientists have discovered that indeed we all do originate from one set of parents. We knew that. Science figured it out. So Paul told us that the sin that came into the world through Adam has been passed down over the generations to each one of us because we all descended from Adam and Eve. So what do we need saving from? We need saving from the pain, and the suffering and the death that comes as a result of man and woman's disobedience to God. All right, so that's what we need saving from. So what did God do? What did God do about it? Well, it was at that moment that God embarked upon a radical rescue mission. Now, as we were going through, I deliberately skipped over Genesis 3.15. Because buried in the middle of Genesis 3, God gives us something we call the Proto-Evangelium the first gospel. And here's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So immediately after this historic time-space fall of man and woman, God promised to one day send a savior. In one cryptic sentence here in Genesis 3.15, Addressed to the serpent, God's talking to the serpent, God told us how he would rescue us. God told us that a person, an individual who descended from the woman would come as a savior and at the cross, even as he suffered, the savior would deal Satan a death blow. In this one sentence, we see both the savior's victory and the cost at which his victory would be secured. And with that began God's cosmic rescue mission of all mankind. And with that, we get the reason for the Christmas celebration. So, as we begin this Advent season, let's all agree to truly celebrate its significance. The story of our sin And God's radical rescue is for real. And if we understand and internalize the importance of the radical gift of the Messiah, then we can go into this season and beyond with the proper mindset to truly celebrate Christmas. Christmas is all about how God, out of his love for his creation, sent his son, the Messiah, to seek and save the lost and draw a people to himself. So with that, let us rejoice at his birth. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we know that that's a whole lot of background. But we know it's important to understand why. Why you sent us a Savior. Why we needed a Savior. And what that Savior has done for us and asks us to do for the world. So God, as we continue on and head into this Christmas season... Allow us to do so with joy, knowing that notwithstanding who we are, notwithstanding the things we say and think and do, notwithstanding all the cruddy stuff that we, that we experience and, and think about and talk about when we think no one's paying attention, notwithstanding all of that, God, you love us. You've made a way to save us. You've made a way to draw, made, made a way to draw us closer to you. So God, allow us to remember that as we share your love with the world around us this Advent season. God, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.